Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is Episode 3 for the first half of September 2011. The topic I'm going to delve into this week is comets, and the young Earth creationists claim that comets somehow show that the solar system must be less than 10,000 years old. Faster than a speeding bullet, able to orbit the solar system continually through its lifetime, more powerful than an atomic bomb. What is it? It's not a make-believe superhero, but rather a created wonder called a comet. Each and every comet is a witness to a supernatural, created, designed solar system. This is Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal. I'm Chris O'Brien with the Institute for Creation Research. Comets have intrigued stargazers for centuries with their beauty and their mysterious presence in the universe. So did comets form billions of years ago, or were they created just a few thousand years ago? Don't space out during the next 15 minutes as we discuss comets and find out some interesting things about these fireballs in the sky. Before we really get started with this, I'm going to talk about what comets are and the structure of the solar system as a whole. For lack of a better analogy, comets are commonly referred to as the dirty snowballs of the solar system. They're amalgamations or groupings of rock and ice, where a significant fraction of that material is ices, or what we call volatile compounds. Volatiles are, well, volatile. They're molecules and atoms that are frozen at low temperatures, but once they reach a temperature like, say, room temperature on Earth, they melt and either turn into a liquid or go directly into a gas, which is called sublimation. Water ice and methane ice would be considered volatiles that make up a large amount of comets, among other molecules. The body of the comet itself is called the nucleus, and this is generally up to a few kilometers across. For example, Comet Halley's nucleus is about 7 by 15 kilometers, an oblong potato shape. Of the comets that spacecraft have visited, Halley was a rather large one, When the Deep Impact mission encountered Comet Temple 1, it found the average diameter to be about 6 kilometers, while Stardust found Comet Vilt 2 to be about 4 kilometers. get pretty big, though, with Comet Hale-Bopp estimated to be about 60 kilometers in size. Now, unlike most planets and asteroids, comets do not generally stay in a nice, circular orbit. Rather, they spend most of their time in the frozen outer parts of the solar system, like way out beyond Pluto, and then for brief periods of just a few years, they venture into the inner solar system and swing by the sun. When they get closer to the sun than Jupiter, which is about five times farther from the sun than Earth, the volatile elements will start to melt, or they'll start to sublimate. When that happens, the comet's coma, or head, and tail will form. The material continues to slowly melt or vaporize until it swings past the sun and heads out beyond Jupiter again. So that's the basic idea of what a comet is, and creationists generally don't dispute that. Now let's talk a bit about the structure of the solar system. In the center, we have the sun, a star. Moving outwards comes the terrestrial-type planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, our moon, and Mars. 
What these have in common are that they're rocky objects with either no or a relatively thin atmosphere. Yes, Venus, all things considered, has a fairly thin atmosphere in terms of the other planets of the solar system. Still moving out comes a large field of asteroids, which are, again, rocky, with very little volatile compounds. This is an important concept in the solar system, because interior to the asteroid belt, when the solar system formed, volatile compounds were not stable. Beyond the asteroid belt, they were. Hence, moving outwards, we have the two gas giant planets, Jupiter and Saturn, with ginormous gaseous atmospheres. Beyond these are the two ice giant planets, Uranus and Neptune, which also have large gaseous atmospheres, but are enriched with more types of volatile compounds that Jupiter and Saturn are not enriched in, namely methane, which gives them their blue color. Beyond the realm of the ice giants lies the Kuiper Belt, or, for the roughly 2% of my listeners who are Brits, the Edgeworth Kuiper Belt. This was a theoretical region of the solar system that was supposed to contain a large number of cometary nuclei, basically very icy asteroids. I say this quote-unquote was a theoretical region because the first Kuiper Belt object was discovered in 1992. Since then, many more have been discovered, and the Kuiper Belt is the source, the known source, of comets that have orbits of less than about two to 300 years. Beyond the Kuiper Belt lies another theoretical region. This is called the Oort Cloud, spelled with two O's. This is theoretically a vast cloud of cometary nuclei that form the comets with periods of more than two to 300 years. It's still theoretical in our solar system because we have not and cannot yet detect any of the cometary nuclei within it because they're simply too small and too far away for our current technology to detect. But we have seen Oort clouds around other star systems. Why do secular scientists believe that they've been around for billions of years? The evolutionary theory is that comets, the dirty snowballs, have been and are still orbiting way outside the orbit of Pluto in a spherical cloud called the Oort cloud. That's O-O-R-T, a lot of chunks of ice just orbiting out there. And every now and then, according to the theory, one of them gets knocked inward toward the solar system. But the bottom line is nobody's ever seen the Oort cloud, and yet we see what looks like an Oort cloud around other solar systems, but we don't seem to be able to see it in our own vicinity. So I have my doubts that it exists, and so do uniformitarian old age, billions of years astronomers also. Uh, Some of them are skeptical. This is, how should I put it, an interesting clip. This is from a religious person who takes the Bible on faith. Not seeing something, therefore not believing it exists. It's such an incredible double standard that I'm not really sure it deserves going into much, but I will anyway very briefly. No one's ever seen gravity, but we see its effects. No one's ever seen the impactor that formed the Tycho crater on the moon, but we have a darn good idea of how it happened. I have no idea how a car works, but I have faith that when I turn the key, it'll start. No one's ever seen a star explode, but we have pretty good models to make predictions about what we should see after they explode, which is what's observed. But really, when you get right down to it, for a creationist, of all people, to say that they haven't seen something, and therefore they don't believe it's there, is really just 
the height of hubris. Anyway, the idea with the Oort cloud is that over time, through interactions with each other or passing stars, the comet nuclei will be nudged, and while some may be nudged out of the solar system, others will be nudged into the inner solar system and will begin their lifetime as a comet that we'll observe. Dr. Russ Humphreys says the sun not only lights up the comet, but also destroys part of it. As they go around the sun, comets lose about 5% of their material. That stuff that goes out and streams out behind it in the tail never comes back to the dirty snowball. Since matter is being stripped away from comets, how long do they survive in the solar system? Dr. Faulkner. The nucleus of the comet is a few miles across. I believe they found Halley's Comet nucleus to be 8 or 10 miles across. That's pretty big. Most are only a mile or two. And each time the comet nucleus comes close to the sun, it may lose a number of feet off of that size. And, of course, the comet gets a little smaller, a little fainter each time. Probably maybe 100 trips around the sun, it would eventually dissipate. But it takes a while. If you have a 100-year orbit and it takes 100 trips, that's what 10,000 years it would take for this comet to die. Now, this has been a, an evidence for recent creation that creationists have used for a long time, showing that comets have a finite lifetime far less than the 4.5 billion years generally assumed for the age of the solar system. That was a bit of a long clip, but boiling it down, there were three main points. One, that comets lose about 5% or a few feet off of their size at every orbit. Two, that a comet with a 100-year orbit would die out in about 10,000 years. And then three, therefore all comets must be less than 10,000 years old so that the solar system must have been recently created, probably by God. We'll go in order. First, on the amount of material lost. If you lose 5% off your size during every orbit, then the first thing to realize is that you will survive more than 20 orbits. That's because you start out at 100%, go down to 95%, but then 5% off of 95 is not 90, it's 90.25. The next pass you'll be at 85.7, then 81.5, and then 77.4, and so on. After 20 orbits, you're still at 35.8% of your original size. So it takes about 45 trips to get to under 10%, and about 60 trips to get to under 5%, not 20 trips. But the other problem is that 5% is not the same as a few feet off of a several-mile-wide comet. Let's just take a small comet, say a mile across, and be generous in that a few feet is about 10 feet. For you metric folks, that's about 1.6 kilometers and about 3 meters, but you can round in whatever units you want. A few feet is about 0.02% of the comet's size, not 5%. That's a difference of a factor of about 250. Not just 2 or 3, like we found out using percentages. So now, if we lose 10 feet off of a 1-mile-wide comet each orbit, and it has a 100-year orbit then it's going to last about 500 orbits, or about 50,000 years, not less than 10,000. That brings us to the second point. As I just explained, if we're losing a few feet off of a comet during each pass of a 100-year orbit, then we'll last longer than 10,000 years. 
But not all comets have 100-year periods. As of August 2011, there were 4,329 known comets. Several hundred of these have periods measured in the tens of years. Several dozen have periods ranging in the thousands or millions of years. For example, Comet McNaught, that was famous in 2006, has a period of 92,600 years. The Comet of a Lifetime, Hale-Bopp, in the mid-1990s, has a period of around 2,500 years. The current Comet of Interest, Elenine, has a period right now of about 11,000 years, but when it was earlier in its orbit, it was closer to 92,000 years. That brings us to the third point, where they simply took simple math and a way, way wrong assumption that because their example was a 100-year period comet, all comets must be less than 10,000 years old. It's just wrong. There's really no other way of saying it besides, for example, Hilbop, which would only complete four orbits in 10,000 years, assuming its orbit doesn't get significantly altered by Jupiter or something else, then it's going to last, even with the creationists' math, over a million years. And that ignores the Oort cloud as a source for cometary nuclei. Now, I realize that creationists do ignore the Oort cloud because they don't think it exists because they can't see it, as I discussed more in-depth earlier. Let's actually say it doesn't exist, just like the creationists want. If it doesn't, where do all of these very long-period comets live? Where do they spend most of their time? By definition, Kepler's second law, these comets spend most of their time near their farthest distance from the sun. We've only charted a few in the last hundred years, so there must be hundreds of thousands more out there that we haven't seen yet, unless you want to use some very special pleading and say that we've seen all of the long-period, tens of thousands of year orbit comets come by the sun in just the last hundred years or so. But there's one more thing about this that I want to address, considering that this is my first podcast about young Earth creationism. Evolutionists date comets at nearly 5 billion years old and say these rapid-moving objects hold clues to an ancient origin of the universe. That short clip shows you something that you'll see in almost all young Earth creation quote-unquote science products. They say that all scientists who disagree with them are evolutionists. It doesn't matter what the scientist actually studies. History, geology, physics, sociology, chemistry, astronomy, biology, engineering, they are all evolutionists. It's really an attempt at poisoning the well linking a science that they don't like with one that they know about 40% of Americans reject. They do this in order to further try to make the listener, reader, or viewer reject the real science. That music brings us to the puzzler. Last week's scenario was like this. In searching for extrasolar planets, one of the most favorable scenarios is where a planet passes directly in front of their star as seen from Earth, and so we see it transiting. Let's say an Earth-sized planet transits in front of a Sun-like star, and a Jupiter-like planet also transits in front of that star. 
They're very slightly offset as seen from Earth, so they don't overlap as we see them. First, doesn't matter how close either planet is to the star to how much light we will get back. In other words, how much light it will block. Second, doesn't matter how far away we are if we assume that we're at least several light years away as observers. Congratulations to Chu again from the SGU message boards for being the first to supply a full, if short, answer. His answer was no and no, which is the solution for all practical purpose. The reason is twofold. First, once you get far enough away from an object, its angular size is going to be linear with its distance from us. This is called the small angle approximation. The second reason uses the first. If the size we get from these objects makes them appear smaller at the same linear rate, then it doesn't matter how far away we are. The relative sizes will always appear to be the same. This is, of course, using the given situation in the problem that we are many light years away from the system to begin with. Now this week, the main segment topic was on comets and whether or not they show that we live in a 6,000-year-old created solar system. Unfortunately, it's kind of hard to come up with a puzzler that uses this information, and so it's really only going to be loosely related to comets, and I'm still not quite sure where the difficulty level of the puzzler should really be. I think the one this week is a little more quote-unquote facts-based than critical thinking-based, but we'll see what happens and if you like it. Asteroids tend to have, overall, pretty circular orbits, and they generally orbit within the rest of the plane of the solar system that most of the other objects orbit in. Comets, though, generally have highly elliptical orbits and are generally on a more inclined orbit to those of the planets and asteroids. Why? Try to figure out the answer and send it to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next full episode. This week I'm going to start a new segment, Feedback. The first feedback is going to be related to the very first episode about the dark side of the moon. It was pointed out that I didn't explain who Kepler was in that episode, and since I used Kepler's second law in this episode, or at least briefly mentioned it, I figured I'd go over Kepler a little bit for background for people who don't know about him. Kepler was a fairly famous astronomer in the 1600s who used the data collected by another famous astronomer named Tycho Brahe. He used these data to formulate his three laws of planetary motion that we still use today. The first law is that the orbits of objects are an ellipse as opposed to a perfect circle. The second is that objects sweep out an equal area in an equal amount of time in their orbit. A consequence of this is that objects in orbit will spend more time farther away from the sun and less time close to it. The third law has to do with the distances from the sun and the length of time it takes the object to orbit. It's formulated as the square of the orbital period is proportional to the cube of the semi-major axis of the orbit. I'll provide links to all of these in the show notes. The next set of feedback is related to last week's topic on UFOs. It was pointed out that I neglected the amateur astronomer rule of thumb in figuring out angular distances. If you extend one hand at arm's length, your pinky finger is roughly one degree wide. Remember that in a degree, there are 60 minutes, and in each minute, there are 60 seconds. Your three middle fingers together are about 5 degrees across. 
your fist is about 10 degrees, and if you make a Y by extending your pinky and index fingers, then it's about 15 degrees across. Finally, your outstretched fingers from the tip of your pinky to the tip of your thumb is about 20 to 25 degrees. I'll provide a graphic in the show notes for the last episode, not this one, illustrating these. Next, I'm going to address feedback on the last episode that was posted to my blog. The first is an anecdote from someone calling himself Limey. He says, I'm reminded of an anecdote I heard once, can't remember where now. It featured two gentlemen standing in a field watching something dark flying about seemingly in the sky overhead in a way that no modern aircraft could. They paused to watch it, and being unable to identify it, they started to speculate on what it could be. It wasn't until it floated down and passed in front of the trees at the edge of the field that they realized it was far closer than they had assumed and was actually a seed being blown about on the breeze. A person by the name of Sai says, We were traveling at night in the countryside, which we do a lot of. We saw a bright, round light behind a barn. All three of us went, Wow, what is that? When it came closer, or when we came closer, it got, of course, bigger. And guess what? It was the full moon. Being on the horizon and behind a barn threw all of our senses out the window. Finally, I'm pleased to report that the podcast is now on iTunes, so you can rate it and or review it. That said, the first three reviews are in, and I now know how Parrot feels when I only gave his podcast a four-star review. You can read the reviews for yourself, but there was one that I wanted to respond to. A person by the name of Raceneo said, I'm very much looking forward to future podcasts, especially one covering the Moon Hoax conspiracy. Well... The episode for September 16th will start out the journey of the moon hoax. But, just like the creationism and just like 2012, the moon hoax conspiracy has many, many claims associated with it. So it's going to take a lot of episodes to get through. And like creationism in 2012, I'm not going to do them all in a row. But they're coming! And finally, announcements to wrap up this longer-than-normal episode. First, I have a new logo. It should appear as the album art for this episode. Uh, Let me know if it doesn't. I will also be posting it in the show notes for this episode, and you can provide feedback if you'd like. I'm also pleased to report that both of the first two episodes have received over 100 downloads each to date. If you like this podcast, please tell your friends, your family, and your frenemies. The more the merrier. I was also recently interviewed on Carl Mamer's The Conspiracy Skeptic podcast, where I talked about a lot of different things, including Billy Meyer and Michael Horn of UFO fame, 2012, and uh, Physics and New Agers. I've put a link in the show notes for this episode to that interview. That wraps up this topic on the third edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. I read every email and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, please write a review and rate it on iTunes. 
also tell your friends and family. Thank you.